City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching the second part of a three-part sermon series called Identify Yourself, and the sermon title is Identify Yourself in the Name of the Son. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Good morning. If you could all come and find your seats. I'm going to read the scripture passage for today. I've got two of them to read. Um, The first one is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And the second passage is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Okay, let's pray together. Father in heaven, do what only you can do by the power of your spirit through your word and for the glory of your son Jesus. I pray that you would speak to us, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Open up our eyes spiritually, Lord, to see truth, to proclaim and confess Jesus as Lord, to bow our knees, to say, Lord, yes, you are God, truly God, and you are worthy of our lives. Thank you for the word of God. I pray today we would see everything we need to see as a church and as individuals as we continue to study and look at what your word says about our identity. So, God, speak to us now, we pray, and we commit this time to you. May every heart be uh, intentionally attentive to, uh, attentive to your word today and to what is being said. And speak through me for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's, um, let's dive right in. This is part two of a, of a short series that we've begun on our identity statement as a church. How many of you remember our identity statement by heart? Very, very good. None of you. All right. <laughs> we are a family of servant missionaries. You're also bashful. Um, that's, our, that's our identity statement. So we've been looking at each of those, family, servant, missionary. And uh, last week, we, um, in this series that we've called Identify Yourself, um, we learned a little bit about the ministry of God the Father. 
looking at the Word, just obviously a few places that we could cover in 45 minutes, but looking at God the Father. And because of that, we know that through faith in Jesus, we become brothers and sisters of one another. That's one thing we've learned. We come to share in the love of the same Father together. That's a beautiful thing. We have the same Father. We know He is the benevolent source of all that is, everything that exists. He is the divine source of all things. The Father is the Redeemer who gives to us His eternally begotten Son, so that through Christ we now cry, Abba, Father. We cry out to our Father in unison and united with Christ the Son. And we no longer are slaves of the house, as Hebrews teaches, but we are sons and daughters of the household of faith. We are sons and daughters. So looking once more at this section, the Great Commission, um, it's really where this statement was birthed. So I just want to review that one more time. So the Great Commission, all authority, this is Matthew in chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. It says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so we have this identity of the name of the Father upon us. Jesus said to be baptized in the name of the Father. And so that's why we studied the Father last week. And so hopefully that identity question of who are we is becoming a little bit clearer, but there's more. And so here, part two, looking at the Son of God, not only are we baptized into the name of the Father, but also into the name of the Son. So what does that mean? We're going to focus our attention there this morning in hopes that that identity becomes even even further into focus for each of us. Who are we? Who are you as a follower of Christ? Who are we as a church? And if you're not in Christ, then by comparison... By comparison, you'll see, I don't have this identity. That means I'm grasping to create my own identity, and it's failing me every single day. And so hopefully by comparison, you'll see, I need to be in Christ. And you'll ask those questions. How do I be in Christ? What do I need to do to have this identity? What is it that's happening? Why is it that these people uh, that are Christians claim to have this identity? And so hopefully these things will be taught and, and led and sorted out by the Holy Spirit today. So, the Son of God. We could also say God the Son. He is God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, are the triune God that we believe in. He is eternally equal with the Father and with the Spirit in authority, power, and essence. There is no difference in their authority and power. Father, Son, and Spirit all share that united essence. And yet, they are distinct in their ministry distinct in what they do and how they carry out this plan of redemption. And oh, how awesome and how precious the ministry of God the Son is to us as a church and hopefully to you as a person. When you think about the ministry of God the Son, there are many aspects of that we could consider. We could consider His love, We could spend an entire day, right, talking about the love of Jesus Christ, how he loves people, how he loved sinners, outcasts, how he loved and forgave. We could look at all of that. We could look at his love. We could look at his authority, the ministry of of Jesus, the Son, the Son of God, his authority. He spoke with such authority, he captivated audiences by the authority by which he spoke. 
That is an amazing part of his ministry, how he is and how he spoke. He was this mouthpiece. We could look at the obedience of Christ, his preaching, his compassion, his care, how he trusted the Father. Isn't there so much about the Son of God? How he trusted the Father. We could look at a variety of these things, but there's one that really stands out that Scripture seems to elevate for us to really know the ministry of the Son, and that is his servant nature. How Jesus is and was a servant. So that's where our text in Philippians comes from. So let's look at that text again. So if, hopefully you're still there. Philippians chapter 2. It was already read for us. So we're going to focus really on verses 5 through 8. So turn there. Or you can follow along on the screen. Let's read this once more. The Apostle Paul says to the Philippian church, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Now, this text is incredible, and you've read this before, and maybe even just reading it is a minister, it's, a, it's one that can very clearly and plainly minister to the child of God as we look at the character, nature of Christ as servant. It's incredible because it gives us a glimpse of Jesus before his incarnation. Isn't that cool? Before, what was Jesus, what was the Son of God before what most of us know him as the human? the God-man. This text gives us a glimpse into pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the Son of God, before he took on human flesh. Now, there's a little bit of theology here. This is good for us. Listen to all this and even take notes. But God the Son was not human before his incarnation. It might be a little bit confusing. So was he, did he get sent as a human? Did he have flesh before he came? It's not what Scripture teaches. The scripture teaches of an incarnation, a point in which he put on human flesh. A particular point in time that he took upon himself human flesh with the full nature of humanity minus one part, the sinful nature. Which brings into it all sorts of important concepts and doctrines about the the virgin birth and why is it important that we believe that Christ was born of a virgin, that it was conception by the Holy Spirit, a miraculous conception because he did avoid completely the sin nature but took upon himself 100% humanity. He was in the form of God. NIV says this. He was in the very nature God. He was in the form of God. The NIV says he was in the very nature God. This was his pre-incarnate state. The Son of God had no wants, had no needs, did not depend on another, but was in fact God in every single way. But we see another distinction being made in Philippians. Notice what it says. It says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what is this saying? He did not count this equality. What was his by divine right and nature? He is an uncreated being. He was equal with God because he is, in fact, God. 
But what does this mean then? That he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, in his pre-incarnate state, in some mysterious and divine way, looked at his godness and the glories of heaven and the nature of the Father and the Spirit, and he made a choice. This is blow-your-mind kind of theology, all right? The Son of God made a choice, but of course we know it was an eternal eternal thing because it was predestined by Father, Son, and Spirit united together that this would happen, that the Son of God would come into the world and take upon human flesh. But look how incredible this is, that, that when the day came for Mary to conceive, we're just kind of look, talking a little bit about Christmas this morning, but it's not intentional. But Mary, when it came time for her to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God went from heaven to earth in an instant. God the Son left heaven, no longer present with Father and Spirit in that place, but actually came to earth and was where? The, no, no bigger than the size of a pencil tip in the womb of Mary. From heaven to earth. So we think from heaven to earth, yeah, Jesus Christ down on the cross. No. Conceived first in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit miraculously. Isn't that awesome? The text says in Philippians that he emptied himself. He emptied himself, but the context helps us to see the meaning. Because if we don't see the context, we would say, well, then he, what did he, he got rid of something. He emptied himself of being God. No, that's not what it says. He, didn't not, he wasn't not God anymore. He didn't lack any power. He didn't get rid of his divinity or his deity. This is, this is not what it's saying. The, the context helps us to see. When God the Son became man in the person of Jesus Christ, he did not cease being God. So the emptying of himself was not getting rid of his nature, but rather the emptying, according to the text, was unveiling his nature. Veiling. How did he empty himself? Look at verse 7 of that text. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself. The purpose of our study, for the purpose of our study, the first point I want to make about the Son of God is that the Son of God did not grasp for position. He did not grasp for position. And what was his position? The glories of heaven. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he veiled his God nature in order to put upon himself human nature, flesh, so that he might experience pain and ultimately death, which was his obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isn't that amazing? What would you do in that position? (laughs) What would you do? Would you veil it? Would you use it for the sake of others or for yourself? What would you do with with a nature like that? And just begin to think for a moment about the the humility of Jesus Christ. The humility of God the Son. Jesus did not grasp for position. God the Son is eternally humble. He did not just show himself humble here on earth with all that we can read about him in all the Gospels. His humility. But he was eternally humble. So you think about that choice. And it's a mind-blowing thing to think about. That at one point he said, I'm going to do this. And it was an agreement with Father and Son, an eternal predestined plan. But Jesus said, yes, Father, everything you say. And he he humbled himself, and he veiled his glory in human flesh. So there's a famous story of um, 
two of Jesus' disciples grasping for position. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to see the human side of this. What does it look like for us to be in a place of position or desire a position? And see, by contrast, the nature of Jesus and the nature of humanity. And again, these are disciples of Jesus. They're already following him. You think, well, they shouldn't, they, they should get this. And maybe this will help you be a little, <laughs> comfort yourself a little bit in the fact that you've not quite arrived yet, neither have I. So Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16 is what we're going to read. We're going to read this whole thing, and, uh, and then we'll talk about it and connect it with the rest of the sermon. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again, out again about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour he did the same. And about the eleventh hour... He went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour, and when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So what's this about? Jesus is, as it says in the beginning of what we read, Jesus is telling us about the kingdom, the kingdom that he brought to earth and how it's not like our kingdom's. It's not like how we think. If you, if you were to go back to the previous chapter, which I'm gonna, I wanted this story to be in your head as we reference uh, just a, a moment earlier, a little bit earlier in chapter 19. Chapter 19 ended with Jesus telling his disciples how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven. You'll recall that story. The rich young ruler and the, 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 the animal, the, the, eye of the, the eye of the needle, the camel. That, you, you know what I'm trying to say. The eye of the camel. In, no. You, <laughs> you get it. And then how it's, how it's impossible, right, in their minds, but God says, but with him all things are possible. Even a rich man can be saved. Peter comes along and says, well, we're not like that rich man, um, Jesus. We're, we're pretty awesome. Uh, we followed you and we gave up everything. So what do we get? What's our reward? Ultimately, is what Peter is saying. And if you want to go back through later, read chapter 19, this will all kind of fold together. But Jesus gives quite the answer. He says this, You will sit on 12 thrones and judge the tribes of Israel. Wow, that's exactly what we wanted. Thank you, Jesus. Everyone who leaves house, brothers, sisters, father, mother, or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. That's great. All of that sounds great. 
But there's one more thing, and he ends with this, and he says this to, to Peter and to the disciples, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so he kind of just drops this mysterious bomb of what, like, what, is, what does that mean? And I think that kind of threw him off a little bit. And then it kind of goes on, and then the parable of the laborers, what we read, comes next. And Jesus, again, is speaking this to his disciples, and others I'm sure are hearing, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard is given to explain how Jesus distributes rewards to people. So Peter comes along and says, what's our reward? Jesus said, well, here's a parable. This is how I distribute rewards. And what's it based on? Grace. Grace. It's based on grace. It doesn't make sense often to our finite minds how God does what he does, but it's not going to be like what most of you think it will be like, is what Jesus is saying. And he ends that parable with the same words that he told Peter, the last will be first and the first will be last. And it should be getting clearer for the disciples and for us, right? It should be getting clearer. Don't think about positioning in the kingdom. Don't even think about it. Don't grasp for positioning or rank or importance like the world sees it. That's not the way of our king. That's not how our king does it. So verse 18 of chapter 20, as they're heading up to Jerusalem, we can look down a little bit further, he pulls the disciples aside just after telling this parable, and he says this. Look at verse 18. See, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of God will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And so you would think at least this would be a place to pause for reflection. Jesus just mentioned his death that we're going to Jerusalem and I will be crucified, you'd think at this point they would say, let's just pause here and think about what Jesus is saying. But look, look at the very next verse, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 and 21. Then, immediately after that statement, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Isn't that interesting? The timing of all that. What has Jesus just been trying to tell them? Don't think about positioning like the world does. I distribute reward according to my grace. And then along comes this sweet mother. Oh, Jesus, let my children be the most important. (laughs) Can they sit at your right hand and at your left? It looks like the sons of Zebedee couldn't get the idea of judging the tribes of Israel out of their heads. That's what they're remembering. This is going to be, you will judge the tribes of Israel. So they're thinking about thrones, and there's 12 of them. There's 12 of us. I wonder where we're going to sit. Maybe we can sit at the two most important spots, at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. So they told their mother about this, obviously, and she's traveling with them at times, and It's just very interesting, right, the timing of all of this. Look at verse 22. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Rightfully so. They're seeing this little side conversation going on. Like, did Jesus just distribute the greatest two seats to these guys? And we, got, we missed out on it. 
So they're angry. They're angry at these two brothers. And then notice even here the, the purposeful, intentional humility of Jesus to submit to the Father. To just say, this isn't mine to give. This is my Father in heaven. Jesus is here in this mode doing as he is supposed to, as he has been called to do, is to do what his Father has said to do, to be submissive to the Father in heaven. Interesting about these two things where he says that these two will drink the cup. James would go on uh, to drink the cup of suffering. He actually is the very first martyr. And John would endure the longest natural life with many attempts on his life to be persecuted and killed for the sake of Christ, but he would live the longest natural life and suffer great persecution. So certainly they did. This prophecy was fulfilled. They did drink the cup of suffering. But like the parable of the vineyard, in God's kingdom, because of grace, many will be surprised when everything finally shakes out in the end. Even at that suffering, and even though they would drink the cup, he's saying as far as the final positioning and how all things work out, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great, this is where I want you to listen. This is where it's going to come together with the rest of our sermon. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Talk about a humiliating lesson. As they're vying for position, and Jesus says, by the way, we're going to Jerusalem, and that's where I'll die. Well, where, where's our positioning going to be? So, uh, yeah, there's that. Well, are we going to be at the right hand, right hand or left hand, Jesus? I mean, I know you're going to die and everything, but what about the, right, I mean, what about the thrones? We want to sit somewhere important. And then Jesus simply says, if you want to be great, you'll be the servant of everybody. He will serve everybody. And he puts his own life forward as an example that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Isn't it incredible what we learn about ourselves when we spend time with Jesus? I think that there's oftentimes we just, you know, we, we, we worry, we, we try to formulate a, a strategy, a path forward for our success and things that we want to do and accomplish, even coming out of sin, when the answer is if you spend time with Jesus, you learn about him and you learn about yourself. You know who you are really in light of the, of the God that we serve. You're humbled where you need to be, humbled lower because Jesus is everything. You see his humility. You see how he served and he is great all this stuff comes into view when we spend time with Christ and these disciples that are walking with him. We often think it would have been such a privilege to just walk with Jesus. That would have been really humiliating. <laughs> right? We get the privilege of being in his word, having his Holy Spirit teach us, seeing the front and back, the middle, everything. And these disciples were just like, it was like they were just winging it. And then Jesus would be like, wrong. <laughs> so gracious, though. What a savior. And this is the point of it all. We have it backwards. We don't think this way in our human state, our minds. We don't think like what Jesus just said, where the servant is the greatest. We have it backwards. We don't serve unless it suits us. We don't give unless we're getting something in return. 
We want positions and placement and power and prestige, but Jesus, when in the splendor of heaven, surrounded by glory, did not consider something, it something to be grasped. And that's the example that Christ gave us. But instead, he veiled his glory in human flesh in order to suffer and die. And that's the comparison that we're given in Scripture. And that should cause our hearts to say, I want less of me and more of Jesus. This, this jockeying for position and desiring reward and power and prestige. Not willing to serve unless I'm being served. That's backwards. We need to repent of that. We look at opportunities to serve. And we say, well, what do I get out of it? If you've done that, well, you need to repent. It's not the way. It's what Jesus is saying. It should not be so among you. It should not be so among you. So back in Philippians, and I think you're probably already starting to see the connection between Philippians 2 and Jesus' humility and obedience and what we're reading about the disciples looking for and grasping at position. Back in Philippians 2, Paul called this veil. He called it the form of a servant. Look back there with me, Philippians 2, and follow the progression, which is actually really a, a regression in, more accurately. It starts in verse 6, the glory of heaven... But he emptied himself, verse 6. Verse 7, he put on human form, that's lower, humbled himself, even lower, obedient to death and the humiliation. So not just death, that's low, but the death of a Roman cross, even lower. That's greatness. That's greatness. If we could just look there longer, and then our minds repent of our sin and look to Christ and see that is what greatness is? How that would change our, not only our lives, our homes, our families, our marriages, our parenting. Think about it. Every aspect in which our desire to be great and right and succeed and have reward and get what we want. Think about every situation where that is ruined because of our pride. And we don't take the nature of Jesus and his example seriously and say, I want that. We see this and then we go home we go, okay, now what do I get? What do I get? What do I want? That's, but this is what greatness is. We have it backwards. So we need to pray, oh God, break us. Break us and bring us to repentance. Greatness is serving. Greatness is in serving. Not only did the Son of God not grasp for the highest position, but the second point I want to make is the Son of God willingly took the lowest position. He didn't just not grasp for it, the highest. He actually willingly took the lowest. And this is the mind we need to have as a church when we think about God and we think about each other. Philippians 2, verses 3 to 5, it says this. Just back a little further from the text we already read. It says, do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's an identity statement, just so you know. This is yours in Christ Jesus. What is our identity in Christ? The identity of Christ's servant nature, his heart, his desire to not be self-centered, but others-centered. We get that in Christ. There is a process of sanctification, is there not? Because even amongst us in this room, we're like, well, I want that, but I'm not very good at it. So what do we need? To be in the presence of Jesus more. 
to be in his word more, where he says that we will feed on him life and his spirit will change us and his word will transform us, the renewing of our mind. The world and its authorities see greatness as power over people, while Jesus sees greatness in terms of our willingness to be the servants and slaves of others. I believe we have many true servants of Jesus here at New City Church. I really do. This is not a rebuke to the entire church. This is a call to every believer in Christ to look to Jesus and let him deal with your heart where it needs to be dealt with. But I do believe there are a lot of very genuine servants, Christ-centered servants of Jesus. But for anyone who needs this loving rebuke this morning, being a part of a church family is not about getting served. I want to say it again in case you missed it. Being a part of a church family is not about getting served. That's from your perspective. I want to be a part of this church family so that I can get served. That's not... Let it not be that way among you. We'd be doing the very same thing. How can I get served? What's my place here in terms of how are others going to see me? What kind of authority can I get? It's about serving. It's not about getting the position you want or the ministry or the preference. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came to be served, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many And are we greater than our master? We're not greater than our master. Look at his words. So let's just take a minute and realize a few things about what this means for us today as Christians and as a local church. When a person trusts in Christ for salvation, part of the new life in Christ, according to Romans and many other places, is that we are no longer slaves to our sin But through the power of Christ's resurrection, we are free. And this is what Scripture teaches comes with the the nature that we receive through trusting in Christ. So Romans 6, 7, a couple Scriptures to, to reference. For one who has died has been set free from sin. For one who has died, and it makes sense, it's logical sense, if you are dead... You are free from that thing that bound you. It can't bind you anymore because you're dead. And so that is the mindset that, you have been, that we've been given in Christ in, us, in the Scriptures. Through Christ's death, we are identified with him in his death. We die to our flesh and to our human nature, and therefore we are free in Christ. Not a slave to sin any longer. We do not serve sin, but we serve Christ. And then Romans six eighteen, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So the new nature, the new life now, serving in, in, in every capacity and slaves to righteousness. This is who we are in Christ. So first point that we made, the Son of God did not grasp for position. Number two, the Son of God took the lowest position. And thirdly, third point, the Son of God died to save us from self-serving and to free us for sacrificial Others-centered, Christ-centered service. He did this in his death to free us, not to just free and to sit and relax, but to be free to serve like Christ, to be Christ-like, to no longer... I mean, do you agree with this? He died to save us from ourselves. I mean, what is the, one of the bigger problems in our lives? Us. Me. So to intentionally look at the cross, Christ, what did you do to say? What did you do in your saving me? You saved me from myself. Thank you, Lord, yes. 
We need this. This is at the core of what our identity is. So when we say we are a family of servant missionaries, that's why that comes. So we have the family that we are all family in Christ under the Father. We are adopted sons and daughters of God in the family of God now. And who are we? We are servants of Christ because we're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son. And what is the Son like? That's what the Son is like. And so that's our identity. That's who we are, to be servants of Jesus. This is the core of our identity statement. When we say we are a family of servant missionaries, it means that in the context of family and fellowship under our Father, we now give our lives away. We now give our lives away. We don't now seek to get everything we want for our lives. We give it away. We seek to serve and give and be around. And, And can that actually be done outside of a context of family? See how this goes together? We see it in the early church. You see it in Christ. Brothers and sisters, to be baptized into the name of the Father or into the name of the Son is to take on His nature. That's what the Scripture says. Not His nature as God. We don't become God. But there is a very nature in which becomes ours. We are united with Christ. There is a union that happens with Christ through faith. It's His humble servant nature. And it's at the core of His incarnation to his death on the cross and then laying his life down these things this is how we identify now so if this is who you are in christ you will not grasp grasp for position like you used to but rather aim for the lowest seat i heard i heard a quote recently that it was at a pastor's conference and it humbled me but it really does apply to everybody everybody who is in christ is that you will work hard to become the least important person in the room, not the most important person in the room. And our sin nature wants to be the most important. If you were honest, if if we're honest, we do this almost in every room we walk into. It's the human nature. How can I be most important? And it leads to so much sin and grossness, doesn't it? But the nature of Christ is servant, it's low, is he aims for the lowest seat, so we aim for the lowest seat. Do the dirty work, right? The sacrificial things that your flesh might hate, but that you know is good for others. That's when you know it's Christ speaking to you, because it's something that you should do that's good for others, where your flesh has to die. That's the very moment where the nature of Christ and the example of Christ begins to serve you. Is there anything like that in your life right now? Something that you know you ought to do. It is a major ought, but you don't do it because it doesn't serve you, but you know it would serve others. The very next step is repentance. God, first confess, confess that sin. God, I am... I have grossly sinned against this person, against this thing. I've done this thing. I'm, I'm holding on to what is serving me, and I see that it is a sinful nature that is ruling in me. I don't care, whether, whether it's your marriage or a re, another relationship, it's something where you're vying for position and it's ruining things. Our aim is Christ, New City Church. Our aim is Christ and the cross always. That's our example. That is the mode of Christian living, to serve 
not because it feels good, but because the God of heaven came down and served us. Amen? We serve not because it feels good or it looks right or because it's convenient for me. Every time I hear about that word convenience in the Christian, any Christian circles, I mean, how convenient was it for Christ? Really, think about it. Was there anything convenient about the cross? If that is our example of humble servanthood to the ultimate sense, then why would we ever think about whether it's convenient for us? to serve the church body, to serve a family member, to serve our spouses. And I get it, guys. It is not easy. It's not easy. I have a flesh just like you do. And that's why we need the church. That's why we need brothers and sisters around us. That's why we need people to say, hey, that's ungodly. That's the sin nature. That's not Christ-like. And we need the help of the Holy Spirit for that. Do we not? We do. So both, both of those aspects, we, we, need to, we need to be intentional. And just because we're not under the law doesn't mean we shouldn't try hard. <laughs> like, let's, let's, let's just make sure that's off of, a, off of the, uh, the table of options here. Hey, God's going to lead me to do this, so I don't need to try. That's, that's wrong. Our faith in pursuing God who leads us is by following Jesus Christ. Following him. Go. You mean, that means you have to get up and do something. Get, you know, so work hard at this. Paul said, I worked harder than any of them. So we work hard at this with our minds focused on the finished work of the cross, knowing that Jesus paid it all for us, that he did this perfectly, so in our failings, he holds us up. And if you're having trouble seeing this this morning, or doing these things, look longer at Jesus. Spend more time with Christ. And if I'm speaking with a regenerate person, then you have a desire, you have an inkling of a desire to be in the presence of Jesus. He never complained once about dying for ungodly sinners. He never complained once. Look at at the records. That should change us. Jesus never complained once. And what was his task? The humility of the cross. That, that should humble us. should break us. You guys agree with me? I don't, I don't care if you don't. Because <laughs> I, I, I still believe it. <laughs> and it's still what we need. If you're, if you're having a trouble, if your trouble in seeing it is that you don't believe it, then you have a whole, you have a whole other problem. It, you still serve another God that isn't God at all. And so what you need to do is turn and, and worship and trust in the true God, Jesus Christ, the one and only God, who actually can save you from sin, pull you out of sin, free you from all of your slavery, and forgive you, give you a clean record, a, his righteousness upon you, where all of your past and all of your sin that haunts you is wiped away. Think about it. And so that would be your next step is, I need Christ, I want to serve him, I love him more than my sin, myself, my idols. But either way, we all need Jesus today. We all need Christ today. So we're going to go into communion now. What an awesome opportunity, guys, to repent of all of this, to look at Jesus, our servant our servant 
who came. It kind of feels wrong to say that, doesn't it? He's our servant. He doesn't do what I want him to do. He does what I need him to do. And he did that at the obedience of the Father. He is the servant of the church. We don't exist without him. So let's pray. I'll pray. I'll close us in prayer. Seriously consider the changes, the repentance, the heart shift that you need God to do in your life today. And just pray it genuinely by faith. Father, we come to you as your your church. We are not perfect. We have so many flaws. We have so many reasons, if it were just left to us, to just give up. But what has been laid before us again today is the perfect Son of God and His plan to save sinners like us. Not only to save but to reconcile, to redeem, to cleanse. I even think about you, Lord Jesus, as you modeled servanthood. You took off the robe around you. You washed your disciples' feet. You set the example. You weren't someone who just said, do this. You said, watch me. Look at my example. So as we consider that today, Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, transform hearts that need to be turned away from the worldly view of success and power and greatness, and that we would be a family of servants that looks at each other's needs more valid and important than often our own needs that are so often just trivial. I'm thankful that you did not say to neglect our needs altogether, but to consider our needs, but also others' needs. So give us the discernment of how to be in your word, to care about our own spiritual health, to pour into our own lives, but at every opportunity to serve others. May we serve God. And may it be for the sake of Jesus and the glory of our Savior. Humble us, Lord. Humble us as we look at the cross, as we remember what you did. We thank you. Thank you for your word. Draw hearts to repentance now, Lord. Confession, faith in Jesus, new lives, forgiveness of sins, all that we need is in Jesus. Thank you. In Christ's name. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.